Hi, this is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We are a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. He began a new series last Sunday called Where Are You in the Story? And we're looking at the stories that Jesus tells. They're sometimes called parables. And we're looking at the ones that Jesus tells specifically in the Gospel of, of Luke. And today we come to one of the most familiar stories that Jesus told. But for that very reason, it's kind of a dangerous story. Because the problem with a story that is somewhat familiar to us is that we, we think we know all there is to know about the story. And I think what we'll see this morning is that in this story, there's far, far more going on than meets the eye. Let's look at Luke chapter 10. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pews, it's page 869. Luke chapter 10, and I'm going to begin to read beginning with verse 25. Luke chapter 10, and beginning with verse 25. The Bible says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Then the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Heavenly Father, we, we see ourselves somewhere in every story that you tell, and that's the case with this story. And, and Lord, we also see you in every story. And that is certainly the case here. Um, because we know that really we were the ones who were helpless on the side of the road, unable to save ourselves. And just as we sung earlier in this service, you alone could rescue. And you alone could save. And you, you came to us and you, you, you lifted us up in your grace, in your mercy. And Lord, you, you call us to be your agents of mercy in a world that is really cold and brutal at times. And so, Father, we pray that you would take your word today and that you would use it to speak 
to us. You, you know the needs all across this room. Um, you're very familiar with, with everything that we're going through. You know exactly where and how we need to be touched. And we pray that you would just get behind your word and in the power of your spirit that you would encounter us right now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Almost exactly 17 years ago today, my wife Melissa and I were, were on our way to our, what was to be our final visit to the doctor before the birth of Caleb, our first child. Um, and so we were living on the peninsula at that point, and our doctor was in Portsmouth. And so we, were, we had to go through the Monitor Merrimack Tunnel. And on this particular day, as, as, as I was driving into the tunnel, right at the mouth of the tunnel... I could look in front of me on the road, and right in the middle of my lane, there was a, a metal part that had fallen off of another vehicle. Well, ordinarily I would have swerved to avoid it, but that was impossible because there was a concrete barrier on one side, and then there was a car on the other side just beside me. So I couldn't swerve left, I couldn't swerve right, and it was too late to stop. All I could do was went and, and kind of center the car and, and, and run over it. Well, we did, and we could hear it hit the bottom of the car, hear it scrape against the bottom of the car. But the car kept going. We thought everything was probably okay until the car began to coast to a stop right in the middle of the tunnel. It had punctured the gas tank. We had, we had dropped an entire tank of gas between the entrance to the tunnel and the middle of the tunnel. And so we, we coast to a stop, you know, kind of right in the belly of the tunnel at that point. Gas fumes heavy in the air. Here's my wife, you know, nine months pregnant uh, right beside me. I thought she was going to go into delivery right then there in the, in, in, in the tunnel. Well, you know, people are whizzing by. Uh, people are just laying on the horns you know, as if that would be helpful um, in that situation. And... And then he stopped. He was a man that we had never seen in our lives. But he pulled up beside our car. He had to stop traffic behind him in order to do that. He pulled up beside us, rolled down the window of his pickup truck. And uh, I explained to him what was going on. And he said, hop in. Not only did he get us out of the tunnel, but he had the sensitivity and the presence of mind to, to know that I would want to be with my wife at that point, and you know, not uh, leave her with, with, with a stranger. And so uh, he went and notified the tunnel authorities as to what had happened, made arrangements to, to make sure the car was going to be okay, where it was going to be, and then insisted on taking us to our doctor's appointment in Portsmouth, uh, which we weren't even late for, as it, as it turned out, uh, because of him. You know, and on the way to the doctor, we, we talked with him, and, and uh, it was uh, he, he said that he was a Christian, and that he, and he would accept nothing from us, absolutely nothing except for our grateful thanks. What's our responsibility to people in need? You know, that, that question comes up really early in the Bible, doesn't it? As Cain cold-heartedly asks God, "Am I my brother's keeper?" What's our responsibility to other people? And if we have such a responsibility, why do we have that responsibility? And to who do we have such a responsibility? Those are the kinds of questions that arise from this story. 
Well, we're going to talk about the story, but before we do that, we need to see the setting. As we talked about last week, every time that Jesus tells a a parable, it's really important to understand the context. What was happening that led Jesus to tell this particular story at this particular point in time? And what's happening in this case is a dialogue that Jesus is having with someone in this crowd. It begins in verse 25. It says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the man is described as a lawyer. He is not an attorney, okay, like we think of a lawyer today. He is more like a theologian. He's an expert in religious law, okay, and specifically the, the law the, uh, in the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, and it says that he, he, he stood up to ask his question. Uh, that, was very, that was very common um, in, in first century uh, culture. It was common for the teacher, the rabbi, like Jesus, to remain seated when he taught. And the students would stand up and, and, and ask the question. And they would stand sort of in respect for the teacher. But in this case, this guy is uh, it's sort of a false respect, a, a false Humility. He really doesn't respect Jesus. Actually, what he wants to do is to test Jesus. Verse 25 says he, he, he asked this question to put Jesus to the test. And the question is, is this, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's kind of an odd question because we, we, we don't usually think of an inheritance as a Payment for services rendered, right? Usually an inheritance is a gift from one family member to another, a friend to another. And Jesus, as he so often did to sort of draw people out, he answers the question by asking a question, okay? Which he does in, in verse 26. What, 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 is, what does Jesus uh, ask this man in verse 26, he, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, you're an expert in the law. You know, how do you, what, is, what does it say? Well, he responds in verse 27. The guy says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, the response that he gives is sort of a combination of Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. And it's what we know today as the great commandment. On another occasion, Jesus was asked by somebody, what's the greatest command in the Old Testament? And how did Jesus respond? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said, on these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. In other words, if you could obey these two, you'd have all the others covered. If you could really love God with the totality of your being, with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you really love that God that way and never failed in that, and if you really love your neighbor as you love yourself and you never failed in that, you would have every other commandment covered. Well, that's kind of the problem, isn't it? Because, you know, our problem is, is not, it, the problem really is not God's law. 
It's our inability to keep God's law. Because not a single one of us has really loved God perfectly with all with the totality of our being, right? We've all failed to love Him as we should. None of us has truly loved our neighbor as ourselves. We've all fallen short of that. So the guy responds with, he says, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says in verse 28, what? Jesus says here, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. <laughs> now, if this guy had really been in touch with the depths of his heart, those last six words, do this and you will live, that would have really given him pause, and specifically the first two words, do this, right? Because none of us have done that the way that we should. If he'd really been in touch with the depths of his heart, the response would have been, but teacher, I've fallen short in that. I I haven't loved God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I've failed to do that. Um, I haven't always loved my neighbor um, perfectly. I, I've, I've failed in that as, as well. I've, I've sinned. I'm a sinner. So what hope is there for a sinner like me? That would have been the correct question. But that's not the question that he asked. In his pride, he, he presses on in attempting to, to test Jesus. What, what does he say? In, in, it says in verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself. In other words, he wants to vindicate himself. He wants to win the point. He desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, you sense there's an agenda in that question, and there most certainly was. Okay, what was lurking behind that question? And who is my neighbor? was the fact that he knew that Jesus had taught. He knew from you know, hearing about Jesus and hearing Jesus teach on other occasions, he knew that Jesus taught that God's love is for everyone. It wasn't just for Jews, one group of people, that God's love uh, was, was, was offered to, to everyone. And so he comes from a circle, this guy, this, this, uh, this, this lawyer, he comes from a circle where they want to chop the world up into categories of neighbors and non-neighbors, okay? And if he can get Jesus to say that certain people are neighbors that the religious establishment has deemed to be non-neighbors, then Jesus is going to be in, in trouble. Well, in a way, Jesus is going to give him what he's looking for, but he's going to do it in such a way that it's going to expose this lawyer's heart. And what's more, he does it in a way that exposes our hearts too. That's the story, okay? We see the setting, then we see the the story. Let's check out the story. It begins in, in, in verse 30. What happens? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
if you've been to Israel, you've probably been along the same road, okay? It's the same road that we take today to go from Jerusalem to Jericho. It takes the same route. It's a modern highway now, but it's the same, the same contours. In fact, you can look over from the, the modern road and you can see remnants of that first century road. It takes the same path. Um, and it's, it's descending, it's winding, lots and lots of sharp curves, bends in the road, and it's dotted with caves all along the side of the road. It is a perfect place for uh, muggers, robbers. They, they, could, they could just leap out and, and be upon their victim before the victim even knew what had hit them. And that's what had happened. Uh, it, it often happened. Um, and and, and in this story, Jesus says that the, this, uh, this lonely traveler, he's been attacked, he's been robbed, he's been beaten, he's been stripped, and, and he's, he's, just, he's, he's lying there half dead. He's helpless, utterly helpless. All he can do is maybe uh, moan in agony. And then, in verse 31, Jesus says, Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, the priests and Levites were both members of the clergy. Okay, they were supposed to be men of God. They were supposed to be exemplary human beings. They were probably coming from their duties at the temple in, in Jerusalem when this, when this happens. So, you know, these guys were supposed to be exemplary human beings, men of God, and not only do they pass by, but the language makes it clear. They go over to the opposite side of the road. They don't want any part of what they're seeing, probably because of the danger that was involved. You know, whoever did this violence to the first person could still be around. You know, in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy, there were all kinds of of stories of, of heroism and sacrifice that emerged, and people who literally gave their lives so that other people could live. But, you know, there, were all, there was also the story, like, stories like the one of Glenda Moore, 39-year-old uh, mother, uh, two sons, uh, Brandon, age two, Connor, age four, and she put them in their car seats in her SUV, and as she was going through high water, the vehicle stalled, and so she got the boys out of their car seats, and, uh, and, uh, and the, the water, the high water, uh, swept them out of her arms. She was frantic, uh, went to the first door. They wouldn't open the door. They, the person called back from inside, we don't know you, uh, went to a second door and, uh, and, and screamed, hollered for help, and they, they cut off the lights to make it appear as if no one was, was home. I mean, these people had hunkered down. For the storm, and they were inside in a, a place of safety, and they weren't about to step out and endanger themselves. That's probably what's happening here, because these, uh, whoever did this violence could very well still be in the area. Ah, they just wanted to get past this thing just as quickly as they possibly could. Um, but someone's coming. <laughs> someone's coming down this road. Someone else is coming. Verse 33, what happens? Jesus says, but a Samaritan... As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, when Jesus says these first three words, but a Samaritan, eyes narrowed, faces turned red. Some people may have even gotten up and left. They would have been angry when they heard this because 
Samaritans hated the Jews. Don't turn there, but just one chapter before this in chapter 9, Jesus has attempted to go through a Samaritan village on his way to Jerusalem, and the Samaritans won't let him pass through because he's a Jew on his way to Jerusalem. That's the hostility. The disciples asked Jesus if they could call down fire to consume the Samaritans, and and Jesus rebuked them. For, for asking that question. Okay, that was the relationship between these two groups of people. It was toxic. And, and so Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is, uh, is, is making sort of the hero someone who, um, who, who hates the people that are hearing this. I mean, just to kind of give you an, a flavor of the shock value of, of, of the story. If you were to modernize the story, okay, it, it would be like someone standing up and saying, hey, someone was beaten and, and, and helpless on a lonely road, and Thurman Hayes didn't care, pass by on the other side. Likewise, David Edgel, when he came upon the scene, he wanted no part of it. He went out, passed by on the opposite side of the road. But then, the local outspoken atheist who writes letters to the Virginian pilot, you know, needling evangelical Christians, he went over and he had compassion. The radical Islamist who uh, is anti-Christian and anti-American and who named his firstborn son Osama after Osama bin Laden, he went over and he ministered and he had compassion. Okay, do you, do you see what's what's going on here. And Jesus here, he piles up the verbs in verses 34 and 35 to describe the extent of this guy's care. It says in verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds. He would have had to like strip his own clothing in order to make bandages to, to, to do this. He bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. The oil would have been to soothe. The wine would have been to disinfect the wound. Then he set him on his own animal, which meant what? He had to walk it and brought him to an inn and and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. A night's stay at a place like this would have been like a twelfth of a denarius. So he's paying for essentially 24 days for this guy to stay at the inn and to convalesce. And he makes it very clear to the innkeeper that any other expenses, it's all on me. I mean, it is total care and compassion from one end to the other. So what is the point that Jesus is making here? Is the point that he's making that, hey, Samaritans aren't so bad after all. That's not the point that he's making the point that he's making to this guy who asked the question to this audience is, if a Samaritan were to behave like this, he would be much closer to the heart of God than you, who wants to chop the world up into neighbors and non-neighbors. Verses 36 and 37 Which of these three, do you think, Jesus asks, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go 
and do likewise. Do you see how Jesus has totally shifted everything? How did this begin? How did this whole thing start out? The whole thing starts because this guy wants to know what kind of a person qualifies as a neighbor, right? Jesus changes everything, right? Jesus changes the question from what kind of a person qualifies as my neighbor to what? What kind of a person am I, right? He shifts the whole, the whole landscape changes. He, Jesus shifts it from, you know, assessing other people to assessing ourselves. And he forces this guy to ask the question. He forces you and me to ask the question. <laughs> and the question's not, <laughs> what kind of a person qualifies as my neighbor? <laughs> the question is, hey, what kind of a person am I? Right? That's a totally different question. Now, the point is, we're to be people of mercy. But what does that look like? What does that look like? I mean, how, how can I be a person of mercy? You know, I, I think lots of times applications to this parable are, they don't, really, they don't really go where we need to go because a lot of times we just hear about applying this to the exceptional circumstances. Right? The young couple that's stuck in the, in the tunnel and, and, can't, and can't move. I mean, we, I began this sermon with sort of an exceptional situation. And sooner or later in life, if, if you haven't already, you're going to come upon exceptional situations. When you're going to have to choose, am I going to behave like you know, 99% of people would behave in this circumstance? Um, and just kind of go along with the herd and the way that they would react, or am I going to stick my neck out and maybe even endanger myself or discomfort myself at least and, and do something different than, that's out of the ordinary? I mean, we need to, uh, we're going to come upon situations like that sometime in life, and we need to be ready when that happens. But, you know, a lot of times we stop there when we think about this parable. We think about just that exceptional situation. I don't think that's where we're meant to stop. I think there are everyday applications to this parable. There are just applications in the course of our everyday life in which we can choose to be people of mercy in a cold world. And where do we begin? We begin with closest to home. Right? We begin even in, the, even in the context of our own families. That spouse or that child that, that needs you to stop and listen. Instead of preaching at them, they need you to stop and listen to them. And give, give of your time, your undivided time to them instead of giving yourself to the TV. That colleague at work, that person that you hang out with that is hurting, and they may try to mask their hurt in all kinds of ways, but they're hurting and they need you to listen, and they may need you to take some initiative and do some practical things 
to help bear the burdens that they're carrying. That need at church, and you've got the opportunity to, uh, to, to serve, to lighten the load of others and enable the gospel to advance. Listen, we live in a world of need. <laughs> we are surrounded. We are in a sea of people every day. In just our normal everyday lives, we're surrounded by physical needs, emotional needs, spiritual needs. You know, the greatest need that any person has is to, is to know the new life and the eternal life that comes through Jesus Christ. We should think of sharing the gospel with, with people um, as, as an expression of, of mercy and care and compassion. You know, when we think about it, really just sharing our faith, witnessing, it's, it's really just helping people. That's really what it is. It's helping them to understand that and, 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 and be able to receive the, the greatest, the greatest, most life-changing, eternal, destiny-changing thing that they, could, that they could ever hear. And for us to sort of walk through the world and, and not share that, it's kind of like, it would be like walking through a field of people who are sick and dying, and we've got the antidote, we've got the cure and we don't, we don't, to not share that with them, <laughs> that's not a very merciful thing. And the reason that a lot of us don't share is because, you know, we're too into our, our own comfort zone. And, you know, we don't want to get out of that. And, well, we're worried about how we'll, we'll be perceived. And, you know, will they still think I'm cool if I open up and, 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 share, and share the gospel with them? Can, can we ever understand that to not share with them is really not a cool thing? in and of itself, it's certainly not a merciful thing. And so, you know, there are just a myriad of ways. I mean, just in everyday life where we can, we can choose to be people of, of mercy. And really it's about having the sensitivity to, to look for the needs that are all around us and then the love and the courage, really to seek to meet those needs in the name of Christ. But why do we do that? You know, what's at ground level, why? What's our ultimate motivation for being people of mercy? It's because we've received mercy as believers, right? It's because we have been on the receiving end of so much mercy. God's mercy. Titus 3.5 says that He saved us not because of works done by us, in righteousness, but because of His mercy. Because really, each of us was the person who was helpless on the side of the road. Unable to save ourselves, unable to lift ourselves. And what happened? God came to us. God came to us, as we sung earlier. He brought us out of death. God became a human being. As we just celebrated at Christmas, He became a human being. He came to us. And when we couldn't lift ourselves, we couldn't save ourselves, what did He do? He came to us and He lifted us up. He's carried us. And He's in the process of binding up the wounds in all of our hearts. 
And he carried our sins to the cross. And he paid it all. He paid it all. And you see, it's when we really get that, (laughs) when we really get that at just the deepest level, how much mercy we have really received. That's when our hearts begin to change and we're able to be agents of God's mercy in a world that so desperately needs it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would make us that kind of people We thank you for the mercy that you have shown to us. Lord, we thank you that you loved us so much that you became a human being. You came to rescue us. We could not rescue ourselves. we We had a debt that we could never pay. And we know that Jesus paid it all. And that if we'll simply look to him and trust him and rest in the finished work that he's done for us, The promise of your word is that there is new life. There is eternal life. Father, I pray for anyone here today who's never done that. Father, I pray that today, right now, that you would give them the grace to look to Jesus and to trust him, just to welcome him into their hearts as as Savior. We we thank you for just the the, the blessing of of seeing these two who were were baptized earlier, the new life that that we find in, in Jesus. As we just continue to bow in prayer right now, that invitation is open to you. If you're here this morning and you're not certain that you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, listen, the work has been done. The price has been paid. You can't earn it. You can only receive it. And you can receive it now, today. Maybe you're here today and and, and God's speaking to you about being a part of this church family. Uh, we're not meant to live the Christian life alone. We're meant to do it together. Um, and we want to invite you to come. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. If you prayed to trust in Christ uh, today or at any point in the past, you've not made that public, Jesus wants us to, to confess him openly. We want to invite you to just step out. As others stand, just step out from where you are. I'm going to be right here at the front. If you say, I want to be a part of this church family, we want to invite you to come. If there's just a need in your life, you just need someone to pray with. If you just want to come pray at this altar, we invite you to do that. So, Father, we give you now this time of invitation. We pray that you'd work in each heart for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing. Thanks for listening to this service at First Baptist Church. We hope you've been strengthened in your faith. We want to encourage you to visit our website at fbcsuffolk.org for more information about the church and about following Jesus. God bless you.